Hi, we're sisters, Amy and Nancy Harrington, the founders of the Passionistas Project podcast, where we give women a platform to tell their own unfiltered stories. On every episode, we discuss the unique ways in which each woman is following her passions, talk about how she defines success, and explore her path to breaking down the barriers that women too often face. Today, we're talking with Benedetta Jasmine Guetta, an Italian food writer and photographer. She was born in Milan, but lives in Santa Monica, California. In 2009, she co-founded the website Labna, the only Jewish kosher cooking blog in Italy, specializing in Italian and Jewish cuisine. Since then, she's been spreading the word about the marvels of Italian Jewish food in Italy and abroad, teaching the recipes of the cuisine to a growing number of people in cooking schools, synagogues, and community centers, among other institutions. Her work has been featured in numerous news outlets in Italy and abroad, including the Washington Post, Cosmopolitan, Ella Tabla, Savur, and Tablet. Benedetta has previously co-authored two cookbooks in Italian, and Cooking a la Judea is her first English-language cookbook. Benedetta also owns a small coffee shop in Santa Monica, California, called Cafe Lovi, specializing in sandwiches made with challah bread. So please welcome Benedetta Jasmine Guetta. Hi, thank you for having me today. We are so excited to talk to you about this. We love cooking. We love Jewish heritage. We love Italian heritage. And so this is just the perfect interview for us. What are you most passionate about? Well, I guess that's an easy one. That's a really easy one. The thing I'm most passionate about is definitely cooking. <laughs> so I have many passions. I like to think that most people have many passions at the end of the day life is long and you get to you know cherish and get passionate about many things but definitely the one thing that has been a constant in my life is cooking so when did that passion start have you been fascinated with cooking since you were a little girl so i have a, i have a mother that cooks very well uh i want to say most italians probably would say the same so i don't think that makes me unique but uh, so i've always looked up to her and i've you know seen her cooking however she is also a stay-at-home mom so for her the kitchen was pretty much her territory and her kingdom so it was always a bit of a not really a conflict but a bit of a you know um a push and pull situation where I wanted to find space for myself in her kitchen. And she was like, yeah, no, this is my place. You can look uh, and perhaps, you know, have small tasks, but you will not really be allowed in the kitchen. So I had to wait virtually until I moved out of my own parents' home to really be able to um, to pursue my interest for cooking. And then I've done it, you know, every minute I had in all of my spare time, you know, whenever I had the chance ever since. So I've I've seen it happening all over my childhood, but to really own the kitchen, I had to wait until I moved out. But you didn't um, start doing cooking as a career for a while. You initially started, studied literature and worked in digital marketing. So tell us a little bit about that career and then what inspired you to make the switch. Yeah, I think like you mentioned the fact that, you know, you you focus on women on these um um, interviews and I think it's important especially for women to be able and maybe it's a luxury at some point in life to figure what is your true passion because I was doing I've, I've been working for over 10 years as a marketing specialist and I knew that I was doing a good job I mean 
uh, I'm a diligent student and I'm a diligent performer of any task that you're going to throw at me. So I was like, I can do this job. I'll do it well. Um, it works. It pays the bills and it gives me some satisfaction. Yet it didn't make my heart skip a bit. It didn't make my eyes shine. Um, and I knew what I really like to do because as soon as I got home from work, I would go ahead and do something else, which was my blog. Um, and that really made me happy. Um, it, it gave more meaning to my life than my daytime job. So as soon as I was able to sort of afford the risk of uh, taking some time off my other job, um, I tried to turn my real passion into a job. Um, that took a while, and I think it took more than anything a big leap of faith. Um, but that was probably the most important thing I've done for myself in my life, because I could have happily continued to do what I was doing, but that wouldn't have really fulfilled me. Um, as much. So how did you start the blog and what is the blog? So the blog actually started in 2009 and I like to joke and say it's been my longest lasting relationship uh, more than any boyfriend or anything else in life. Um, so it's been a while and uh, it started off actually not even out of my own intention but from the intention of my uh, best friend Manuel. Uh, he was teaching cooking classes and I was tagging along because I really liked cooking. So I was looking for every possible chance to cook. Um, and so as he was teaching cooking classes, we, I was assisting him and we were recording the recipes that we were teaching so that the people that came along to one of our classes could just have um, a place to find those recipes. Because in my experience, every time you give somebody a recipe on a piece of paper, it just gets terribly lost. It never, ever <laughs> makes it home. So, so we started recording our recipes and we didn't really know what people were interested in. Um, in particular, we were teaching our cooking classes to the Jewish community in Italy. Um, so it was a mix of things, but we never really wanted intentionally to focus on Jewish food. Um, however, over the years, we found that there was in Italy a growing interest towards kosher and Jewish cuisine, um, mostly because Italy has a very small Jewish community. There's about 35,000 Jews uh, in the entirety of the country. And there's a lot of curiosity towards the Jewish world because as a, you know, as a Christian, uh, I mean, Italy is a Christian state. And so most people are just, you know, belong to another religion and they could just go their whole life without ever meeting a Jew. So we found ourselves online as the spokespeople of the Jews in Italy, in a way. So we were not planning on writing about Jewish stuff, but, you know, the Jewish holidays came along and we were telling people how we celebrated the Jewish New Year. And, and there was so much curiosity. It was like, oh, do you guys have another New Year? Like, do you, do you celebrate the other one and this one? And like, do you, you know, in Italy, you eat lentils for New Year. And they're like, do you eat lentils? And we were like, nope, um, it's a Jewish thing. We eat other food that have other meanings. So as that happened, we started to stir our content more towards the Jewish um, sort of field, mostly because, like I said, because that was the demand. Uh, and it's been very satisfying and fulfilling because there's so much like I said, curiosity um, towards the Jewish culture. And it's been a, a honor, really, to, to be able to answer that curiosity. So describe the intersection of Italian and Jewish cuisine so that people can understand it. And 
And why was that? Is that so appealing to you? Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say I really appreciated what you said at the beginning. You know that these are two really appealing cultures. Everybody loves Italian food. Everybody loves Jewish food. Um, if you could have two grandmas, those are the two grandmas you would want to have, right? You would have you want to have a Jewish grandma and an Italian grandma. I always like to say. So, um, what is interesting about Jewish Italian food? Um, however, the way I have tried to present it and explain it is that it's not a fusion cuisine. Like, don't imagine, you know, matzo balls, spaghetti. Uh, I'm just making it up. Um, what is interesting about it is, and that most people don't know, is that Italy has a really old Jewish um, culture. Um, Jews have lived in Italy since the Republican days, so um, very, very many um, centuries ago. And uh, the fact that we have had this very ancient culture has um, per, has allowed the Jewish Italian um, community to grow and evolve in different ways from all of the other communities that we generally think of when we think of Jewish culture or Jewish food. Um, in America, mostly due to the fact that uh, the vast majority of the Jewish population is of Ashkenazi origin, we tend to associate Jewish culture and Jewish food in particular to the Ashkenazi um, influence. So people would think again about matzo balls or they would think about gefilte fish, I don't know, all of those things, black and white cookies. Um, while the Italian, Jewish Italian culture is an entire other thing. Like on my table, you would never find matzo balls. They're not a thing. Um, so I tried to present a different way of being Jewish in a way, which is the Jewish Italian way. Um, and it's something that goes through every aspect of life. It um, reflects in the cuisine most visibly, but it also reflects, for example, in the way we pray. Our prayers and songs are different. So uh, it's a very specific and unique niche um, or identity within the Jewish identity. So when it comes to food, uh, the question was, what do I call Jewish-Italian food? When I started writing my book, my editor was like, can we narrow it down? Because I had like 400 recipes I wanted in the book, and she reminded me that the book would have been a tiny tad too thick if I tried to put 400 recipes in it. So I um, tried to answer this really sort of fundamental question of what is Jewish-Italian food? And I eventually went down with two really um, substantial sort of trends. One is the food that is historically Italian Jewish. So food that we attribute to the Jews as the creators or the inventor of, of that specific food or sometimes even that specific ingredient. So where there's like some sort of a philological approach and we can see that the food has a specific Jewish identity within the Italian context. Um, and then I tried to also give some space to the way the Jews have evolved Italian food to meet their needs and standards, because obviously being Jewish comes with uh, a number of rules uh, we have to follow about the way we eat. So um, the prescriptions of um, eating kosher have also, in a way, change the way somebody in Italy eats as a Jew versus the way somebody eats in Italy as a regular Italian. So these were the two aspects that I tried to record in the book. And, uh, and it's, it's been very fascinating because it's a very small 
but uh, interesting niche that people don't really know about. When I moved to the US and I started telling people that I was writing this book, there was just so much, uh, I don't want to call it ignorance because it's wrong, but there was just so much unawareness of the existence of my culture. People were like, oh, are there Jews in Italy? And I was like, yeah, um, here's one. Um, and and the ones that had accidentally, you know, been on a tour of Rome and probably walked through the ghetto and knew that there are Jews in Italy, they still knew nothing about uh, our culture and nothing about the way we eat. So I really felt uh, that there was an opportunity to present uh, um, our story to a wider audience. In addition, the fact that we are such a tiny community um, has uh, somehow given me a certain amount of anxiety because a lot of the traditional recipes and stories that have been there for centuries are somehow on the verge of getting lost. Because uh, like I said, the numbers are shrinking, the community is small. People, many just don't care. They they don't have such a strong uh, connection to their religion. So I also felt it was a tremendous opportunity to be able to present uh, the Jewish-Italian culture to the U.S. in particular, because here there is an audience, there are people that care. And so there is a chance that all of these stories and recipes um, are going to, you know, reach a wider audience and live on um, better than they would have in the sort of shrinking uh, Italian environment. Wow. Yeah, it's a very... um powerful book i was surprised how moving it was to uh to read it because one of the things i love about what you did is you give the history of judaism in italy which i think is beautiful the jewish people in italy you also talk about the food regionally and the communities regionally which I think is really fascinating. And I think people think of sometimes just kind of generalize a culture like, oh, Italians all eat spaghetti and meatballs, like you were saying earlier, but Northern Italians eat different food than Southern Italians. So then to add into that what the Jewish community eats in Northern Italy versus in Southern Italy, I think you did beautifully. And in each case, you also talk about the history of that area. So um, so we, you learn a lot beyond just the recipes themselves. So talk about writing the historical elements of the book too. What kind of research did you do to do that? Um, so first of all, I'm very glad that somebody appreciates the effort that went into that. Uh, when I was narrowing down the famous 400 recipes that I had at the beginning, another one of my concerns was to give a fair amount of representation uh, to every part of the country, um, specifically because like you noted, Italy has a very fragmented territory. Um, it's been historically fragmented at all times. Um, and uh, so every area of Italy, every region would have its own very specific, um, you know, first of all, weather, climate, um, ingredients, and therefore flavors. Uh, and that applies to Italian food at large, just as much as it applies to um, the Jewish uh, specific aspects of food. Um, in particular, one of the, the one of the reasons why I like connecting the geography to the history um, is that it's hard to really understand food uh, unless you appreciate the context in which it developed, uh, both historically and geography geographically. Um, so whenever I have a chance, I like to give things some sort of a frame. Um, in addition to that, the other reason why I decided to sort of provide a bit of a 
context again was that people are very curious of Italy. Um, there's always a great interest in Italy as a country, and, and but it tends to be always done with a very broad brush, like you said, it's uh, spaghetti and pizza, um, and there isn't usually as much depth um, when when it comes to um, our geography and our history. So I try to give some, you know, to shed a bit of light uh, on those topics. Now, in terms of uh, to answer your question, in terms of research. Um, History, in a way, is easy to research, especially if you just need to provide a bit of context. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take uh, a huge amount of genius. But what I felt was valuable in what I did in preparation for the book was I went and visited a lot of uh, Jewish communities and people all around the peninsula. Um, and I I really tried to collect more of their firsthand experience of uh, you know, being Jewish, whatever is it that they lived. And uh, that really speaks, um, their food speaks about their land very often. So, for example, if you visit uh, Lombardy, my region, uh, you would find that there are many dishes featuring pumpkin. Uh, And that's because it was the Jews who originally um, really uh, started to promote pumpkin as an ingredient in the region. And it's just a region where it geographically grows easily. It's easier for, it just fits the territory. Um, and so you would find all of these Jewish dishes with pumpkin that you wouldn't find in southern Italy. Um, by the same token, for example, in Venice, uh, Venice was so close to um, Northern Europe, to the German and the Austrian influence, that you would find a number of Jewish dishes with goose, because the Germans were used to farming geese. And so the Jews of Italy took from the German Jews the habit of cooking with these ingredients. So wherever you go, you can really see how the um, territory on one hand has influenced the way people eat, and on the other hand, how the history has influenced it. Because like I said, for example, in the case of the Goose, it was the fact that so many German Jews were moving towards the peninsula in the Middle Ages that we started to cook with those ingredients. Um, Or by the same token, again, um, another good example would be the usage of uh, almonds. There were all the Portuguese Jews that had to leave Spain and Portugal in 1492. And so those Jews brought with them ingredients that other way we wouldn't have cooked with. So you can just eat the food and it's great. But I do think that uh, placing it in context just gives it more um, more interest. It's just so fascinating and just something that I think most people really don't even think about. You know, I know, I know we recently just discovered that our ancestry goes back to, to the Jewish people. And we grew up our entire lives being told we were Italian. You know, our, our mother's family was Italian. We know the village where they come from. They've lived there for centuries, but we just recently found out that their name was Sacco, but it was originally East Sacco, which is Isaac. And that, and, and so it's like, it's kind of mind blowing. And it's, it's something that like, well, of course it makes sense historically when you think about it, that yes, there were Jewish people in Italy hundreds and thousands of years ago, but it's, it's fascinating to learn about it. Um, so is there a story, you said you traveled around talking to all these different women in your travels. Is there a story that sort of sticks out as one that you really remember most fondly or had the most impact on you? 
Sure, uh, that's an easy one. The one that had the most impact on me and actually the reason why I eventually, in the back of my mind at least, decided to make this into a book um, was a visit that I did to the Jewish community of Venice. Um, so the Jewish community of Venice is very small. There's like 400 Jews there, more or less, give or take. Um, average age, a million years. Uh, don't quote me, hopefully they don't listen. Uh, but yeah, um, not in great shape um, in many ways. So, but they do have very nice traditions, one of which is uh, for the Jewish holiday of Passover, they get together before the holiday and they uh, bake um, kosher for Passover cookies for the whole community. So the community gathers, the women work, uh, the rabbi supervises, um, and then the goodies are distributed um, within the community. So, of course, I wouldn't miss the opportunity to go learn all of these recipes that they make for this Jewish holiday. They bake like five different types of cookies and they've been baking them for centuries. So I went there and I spent the day with them and I had a great time. I made the cookies. I ate the cookies. And you could see that there were all of these older ladies. Uh, they knew that I have a website. This was way before I had the, I wrote the book, but I was collecting information. And uh, But they knew that I had a website and I was taking pictures and it was very endearing because they were like, oh, it's so great that you're recording these recipes. We can't wait for the world to see them because, you know, they're on the Internet. And once they're on the Internet, everyone will know about them. And I was like, damn, I mean, I don't want to tell them that it's just going to be like probably a few thousand readers because um, they just had this really idea, this idea that really I would give them a window um, on the world and that their recipes would, you know, be passed on for potentially a really wide audience for very many generations. So, and, and it's true in a way that uh, those recipes don't have, I don't think that those recipes have a really long future ahead unless uh, it's through what I can do for them, like through the service that I can do to their community to have those recipes um, live on and reach a wider audience. So I felt invested of these sort of responsibilities from these grandmas that I would take the recipes to the world. And again, the world was a bit ambitious. It's not really the world, but they crossed the ocean, which is, I guess, further than they would have ever um, made it if they stayed in Venice. So that's, I guess, progress. Well, and that's amazing. I mean, think about that. Think about getting a thousand people to know about those recipes is huge. It, it, the oral tradition of passing them down from gen generation to generation didn't impact that many people at a time. So the work yeah, you no, do I guess is, it's, it's progress. Yeah, it's so incredible. So talk about how you do get out and share this information with people because you said you do a lot of speaking and, te and temples in different places. So how does how do you book those events and everything? I do. So since the book came out, uh, I've especially, I, I mean, I always did it, but also since the book came out, I've, I've been going around teaching to virtually anyone who invites me. Um, I'm, I'm very available. So um, I guess I've visited either in person or online uh, a ridiculous number of Jewish communities uh, all around the US. In Italy, I used to teach... Uh, 
mostly to you know the communities within reach in Italy, but uh, um, the US is obviously a much wider scene. So also through the help of the Jewish Book Council, which is a great association, um, I have presented the, or cooked along or done demos or you know whatever other format um, in a number of uh, places. Um, the, it, it did help that the book last uh, like a few months ago won the, Jew, the National Jewish Book Award. So that that besides being a you know a, a great uh, and exciting thing has um, given some uh, more attention to the topic, which has allowed me to again reach a wider audience. Um, I've always felt that it was a bit of a mission. To, to really educate on, on, on the topic of Jewish-Italian food. So the fact that there is interest and the fact that there is demand just means the world to me. Like literally every time somebody reaches out and says, hey, would you like to do that? I'm like, yes, don't tell me anything else. Just tell me where and when uh, I'll be there. That's great. And so you're so entrenched in Italian culture, but you move out of Italy and go to the U.S. So what drew you to the U.S. and what specifically drew you to California? Uh, so I've actually moved out of Italy much earlier than when I moved to the U.S. in that I have lived in Germany and in Israel before. Um, I love Italy. Uh, I love our culture. Yet I have always been eager to expand my, um, I guess, horizons as they say so I've lived abroad ever since I was I think 18 um, I and that has been very enriching I I just love the fact that uh, um, I've, I've, I've had the privilege to live in so many different places um, however the re so I, I eventually moved to, let's do it like that I eventually moved to the US for love because um, my partner um, lives here. Um, we, we lived in Israel together for a year and then we um, moved to the US, mostly because his job takes him here. Um, and he has a daughter. So I committed to living in California for the next five years until his daughter goes to college. Uh, I didn't choose California and I don't mean to be ungrateful. It's, it's lovely, uh, but I'm not sure it would have been my number one choice. Um, so I can't really own it as much, but, but it's, it, but it's as good as it could be. Um, and I must say over the years, it has grown on me. Um, there's still many things that are difficult for a European, I want to say. Um, one of them is traffic and the fact that everything is just so far. Um, but, um, but it's been a very enriching experience. And I feel as time goes by, I grow more and more Californian. So I think that by the time we will probably move out in five years, I will definitely miss this. And do you have, do you have a place you're going to go next? Um, we, well, we have not really figured it out. We thought we would live in Israel, but for a number of reasons, eventually Israel didn't logistically work out for us. That's where my heart is. Um, I, I just really loved living in Israel, but, uh, but we will see, we might end up gypsying like we often say we do, um, between different places, like, uh, a bit in Italy, obviously, cause I've got my family and a bit here cause my partner's daughter will still be here most likely. And, uh, and we'll see. So, um, so while you're in California, what inspires you to open Cafe Lobby? Um... I don't know how to put this in a nice way, but uh, 
as a European, you don't have very many options to be legal in this country. Um, so when I moved to the US, I moved as a student, um, but uh, you can't study indefinitely, despite the fact that I love studying. Um, and so to make sure that the United States Customs Office, whatever they're called, the Border Patrol, don't kick me out. Um, I had to pick a visa and a very easy visa to work with uh, is the investor visa. So I which substantially says I'm going to put money and open a business um, and I'll contribute to the United States by creating jobs and, and employing people and things. So that made sense for me. I enjoy cooking. Now, I'm more of a writer and a photographer and a historian than I'm an actual cook. Um, I'm not trained as a chef. I'm more of a geek. Um, but I was lucky to meet the guy that works with me, who is a chef. His name is Toffer. Um, and together we opened my cafe lobby, which is this tiny um, coffee shop that I have in Santa Monica. Um, and again, for a number of circumstances, the place... Uh, doesn't really fit the whole kitchen. It's very tiny. Um, we literally can barely move the two of us in the back of the shop. So all we could fit in there was sandwich making. And so I was like, I know exactly what sandwiches I like. I like challah. Challah is my favorite thing in the world. I could eat challah for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. If I were to end up on a desert island, the one food I would like with me is challah. So... So I told Toffer, we're going to make sandwiches on challah. And he never, he didn't even know what challah is. So I was like, here, try. Um, and he was sold. And then he told me, you know what would make it even better? We're going to toast it with butter. And I was like, butter? Um, and so he was right. I mean, challah is amazing. But if you toast it with butter, it's just even more amazing. So that's how we started making our sandwiches. And that's what we do. Um, then obviously being Italian, I was obsessed with coffee and I wanted a good coffee. Um, and so we make coffee and sandwiches. That's what we do. It, it's been actually very cute how, um, the neighborhood and, and people are supportive of small businesses. I've never worked in a small business. I've, I, I, I'm, all of my previous jobs were big corporate jobs. Um, and, and it's been very um endearing to see um how nice people actually are a lot of the time we imagine a world full of karens that scream at people and tell you how they want their cappuccinos uh but most of the time uh people are really nice and really appreciative uh so it's been actually very fulfilling to have a job that has put me more in touch with uh, the sort of end consumer <laughs> Uh, that, that has taught me a lot. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast in our interview with Benedetta Jasmine Guetta. Visit her food blog, labna.it, to get a copy of her new book, Cooking a la Judea. Connect with her on Instagram, at labna, and if you're in Los Angeles, have lunch at Cafe Lovi. Now here's more of our interview with Benedetta. So you mentioned earlier that you're a, ph a photographer and food stylist as well, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure. So when I first started my blog in 2009, I want to say that those were really not 
actual jobs, uh, at least not in Italy, it wasn't a thing. But uh, if you liked creating content for the online world, you ended up trying to be not only a cook, because you had to cook, but you also wanted to present your food uh, in an appealing way. And over, I want to say over the last 10, 15 years, the standards have become stellarly high. Um, you couldn't just show a recipe. You had to show it with all of the fancy you know, um, aspects to it. And there's something about the way you present food that also really needs to tell the story of that food. So the narration of, of a recipe uh, really sort of seemed to um, involve not only, you know, the ingredients and the procedure of how a recipe is made, but uh, um, the story that you can convey through the images. At the end of the day, if you're not going to taste the food, uh, you want the um, readers to at least be able to imagine it. Uh, and the best service you can offer to the imagination is to provide images. So, so when I when I was uh, you, you can see at the very in, in the early recipes of my blog the pictures were dreadful, um, and then I had to teach myself how to take better pictures and how to style the food so it would be better. Because you might have an amazing stew. Stews are particularly nasty. Um, you might have an amazing stew, but it's brown and it looks dreadful. So you want to give that stew a chance of appealing to people, yet it can be rather unappealing unless you start, you know, sprinkling some parsley on top and putting it in a fancy bowl and having a prettier background than your kitchen marble. So, um, so eventually all of these things ended up uh, uh, like, I mean, I, I ended up growing into all of these fields just because I wanted to offer a reader better, um, a better experience of the food, despite the fact that they wouldn't be eating the food. Um, so, so I pretty much started to learn. And as always, when you enjoy something, learning is easy. Um, and, and in that, uh, one of the, and it, it just brings to my mind the fact that we were talking about the fact that eventually I should pass on um, the testimony to someone that you can interview next. Um, there have been so many women, especially um, in this field that have inspired me, that I really look up to and that have brought me from, you know, my early days of my blog looking absolutely dreadful to uh, food photography that I appreciate and I'm proud of um, today. So that's, I guess, one of the many things that uh, not only my passion, but the passion of other people have um, allowed me to learn uh, and to grow into. Along your journey, what do you think has been your biggest professional challenge and how have you overcome it? That's a very hard question that no one has ever asked me before. Um, I think I'm thinking, so the first thing that comes to mind is uh, insecurity. Like a lot of times, uh, I think, especially as a woman, I don't think that's such a manly experience, but especially as a woman, you question yourself and you're like, oh, am I good enough? Uh, is this thing that I did good enough? Um, is it finished really? Should it, is it perfect? Should it be better? Could it be better? And so I find that in many ways, I'm often the worst enemy of myself and I often stand in my own way. So the biggest challenge has probably been to be able to say, 
look, we did what we could have. We don't know if it's perfect and we don't know if people will care. There, there's a number of things that are not in our control, but we just need to take the famous leap of faith that I mentioned at the beginning and let it go and see what happens. Because, uh, like, many people t- try to explain to me that uh, um, I, I had a teacher that used to say that um, that good is better than perfect because perfect you'll never really get. Uh, but all of my life I've been striving for perfect. And that's where everything just does not happen. Like that's where you get stuck. So getting stuck in the search of perfection has often been very, very bad. Um, the book itself took me three years to write. And that's not like the research, it's the writing. The research was before. And looking back, had I been maybe a little bit less strict with myself and a bit more understanding, it could have been done faster with most likely just the same results. Um, so yeah, just knowing when to stop and when to just let things take the course that they should without being too afraid, too insecure, too, you know, too uncertain, that would probably be helpful in general and as a lesson for the future. Given that there's such a small Jewish community in Italy, what was it like for you growing up as a young Jewish girl in that country? Uh, Good question. Uh, I love your question. You both have such thoughtful questions. I'm sorry, I just have to say, because I get interviewed a lot, but these are such thoughtful questions. It it really feels like you spend the time to, you know, research things. Um, So... The community is small, but it's tight and it's concentrated in substantially very few cities. I grew up in the second biggest city. Uh, the, the biggest city is Rome. I grew up in Milan, which is, the, like I said, the second biggest. Um, and I was lucky to go to the Jewish school from elementary school all the way to middle school. Um, so, you know, my parents felt that I would get a Jewish, a proper Jewish education. But then my parents also wanted me to see the world. So in high school, I went to public school. Um, so I feel like I was lucky to have the best of both worlds uh, in that I had a strong Jewish foundation to rely on. Um, yet uh, I was able to be, you know, a citizen of the world uh, in the rest of the time. The Jewish community of Italy in particular, compared to that of the U.S., is, uh, um, I don't know how to explain, our, our, our way of being Jewish is more black and white than things are here. Uh, when I moved to the U.S., I was very confused because there are just so many different ways of being Jewish here. You can be a bit conservative and a bit modern and a bit reform. And I mean, the, being Jewish here has just so many flavors and sauces. Uh, in Italy, there is just one way of being Jewish. You can be Orthodox or you're just Jewish, but you break the rules. So there's either you stick to the rules or you break the rules. But we don't call breaking the rules a denomination. I don't know how to say. Um, we just call it breaking the rules. So, and that's something Italians do really well. Like that's our specialty. We break the rules all the time. So the way you're raised as a Jew is you're told what are the things you should be doing. And you're going to be trying your best all your life. And then you're going to have to deal with the fact that your best is insufficient because uh, you're really not sticking to all of the rules. But but by that time, you're old enough to make you know peace with it. So I was brought up, like I said, in a, in a fairly orthodox context. Our synagogues are 
quite orthodox. Um, our school, we would be taught all of the prayers and all of the proper things. Um, but then, you know, what you're taught sort of crashes, clashes against reality, because in reality, it's harder to stick to all of those rules. So I always felt like I was somehow a bad Jew. Uh, now in the US, I'm told I'm a reformed Jew. And I'm like, great. Um, so, so that's been lucky moving to the US and suddenly finding that I'm just not a bad girl. I'm, I'm, I'm among other bad people like me. Um, and um, other than that, you, as a Jew in Italy, like I said, first of all, we're very lucky in Italy, there's very little antisemitism, virtually none, um, despite the fact that it's a Catholic country and it's been fairly bad to its Jews for centuries. I want to say to be a Jew in Italy today is relatively easy. I mean, I was never, I never had any challenges. Um, unlike I would imagine you would have in France or in other um, places in Europe. Uh, this, however, is also sort of aided by the fact that uh, most Jews of Italy lead a fairly secular life. So like I said, you can, you can be a Jew in Italy and people wouldn't really notice, like you're just an average Joe. Uh, none of us goes around, uh, you know, I don't know, with the long sleeves and the long skirt and a wig, not many. So, so you're, you're fairly anonymous among people of other religions. Um, the only substantial difference would be like, I don't know, when I, when I went to high school, my snack wouldn't have prosciutto in it. It would have turkey daily, um, like daily turkey or something like that. But other than that, you're pretty much the same as everyone else. Um, so it's some, somehow like a, I want to say mimetical experience, like you're just part of the context. You have your own special things, but they sort of build on the Italian identity. They don't uh, substantially change it or they don't, like, it's not like one identity robs you of the other. What advice would you give to that young girl growing up in Milan? Probably the one thing is to try and think even bigger. I always felt like I was thinking bigger than the average person there. Uh, but the world is so much bigger and the opportunities are so much more numerous. Um, a lot of us, I think, uh, especially in Italy, but in, in many countries, and I think Europe in general, we don't look a lot outside our comfort zone. Uh, even when I, even me moving abroad and changing countries and doing many things, it was ambitious, but it wasn't like the most ambitious thing one could have done. Um, and I think not being afraid of pushing the envelope, of trying new things, of going out of that comfort zone, because that's really where the fun happens, is what I wish I could have done more for myself as a younger um, person. Um, I gave up on a few opportunities because at the time I was like, oh, that's scary. I don't know. Is it safe? And safe is never a great place to be um, in general, I think. That's what I feel like I've learned. To, to grow and to, and to make progress, safe is not uh, the place to be. So be less safe would have been uh, probably a good piece of advice. So you said that this book started with 400 recipes. Probably even more, but yeah, call it 400. Let's round it down to 400. Yeah. So what are you going to do with the rest of those? Will there, is there another book coming? 
I don't think there's another, I don't think there's part two of this book. Um, I'm working on some Italian version of it, hopefully at some point. And, uh, and there, there's a few other things that will rotate around it, but I think that book is done for now. Um, I have another project that I'm working on, which is even more niche and is even more weird and geeky. Um, so I don't know that it will have an audience at all. Uh, I'm still shopping around for a publisher, but, um, but the, the book is sort of happening in my head. Um, we call it wishful thinking, um, which is a book about uh, the, the cuisine and the traditions of the Jews of Libya. Um, my, most people can't even place Libya on a, on a map, so don't worry. Uh, it's all good. You go home, you Google it. Uh, if you're one of those, it's no offense taken. Um, but Libya is the country where my father's family came from. Um, it's a very interesting place. And I think um, actually it, it fits within the fact that there's a number of people, I think, worldwide in the Jewish um, world that are trying to claim back their, um, what they call the Mitzrahi um, experience. So the experience of the Jews that lived in the Arab world, in North Africa, um, until fairly recently. Most of these Jewish populations lived there until the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, um, and then they're gone. There are no more Jews left in those countries. Libya has zero Jews as of today. Um, all of those Jews had to flee those countries for their life. Um, and uh, they um, had a very, very specific experience because these were people that left their countries not uh, like me to you know, have more opportunities or learn or have fun. These were people that had to leave their countries against their will. So they have a very conflicted identity. Um, they moved to somewhere else a lot in the case of Libya most of them moved to Italy because it's just across the Mediterranean and many of them moved to Israel some to the US so they embraced another culture they a lot of them grew up in another culture because they were young where they moved but their heart remains in the country of origin and they have cherished their recipes their traditions their way of praying and all of that stuff um, for decades and for generations, um, while obviously not being allowed to go back to their motherland. So, I don't know, it's it's a culture that fascinates me and, uh, um, and it's the other half of my identity, it's the other half of the way I grew up. So, it's, uh, it's a cuisine that I'm very interested in that has virtually not really been um, recorded in writing just yet. Um, mostly because these populations were very lowly educated. Um, so just mostly for lack of logistical opportunities. And so I am, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my documentation and collection of recipes and things and putting together a book proposal that hopefully somebody will buy. Tell us a little bit about the cuisine of Libya. It's something most people don't know much about. Yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't, like I said, uh, it's not surprising because it's just one of those countries that are not really much on a map. Also, for most people, like, I mean, Libya, the very few times that Libya is in the news is because there's some crazy dictator that is, like, you know, um, acting out. So, um, tough country to be in. And um, so their cuisine, their cuisine is obviously very Mediterranean. There's a great deal of tomato, a great deal of spices, um, a lot of stews and things that are very flavorful. 
um, a couscous, obviously, like everywhere else in the Mediterranean, um, and um, amazing sweets, uh, very, very um, delicate, uh, crafty desserts. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of very specific Jewish things uh, that correlate to the Jewish holidays and to, uh, to you know, the specific Jewish dietary needs. So, and, and, and another aspect to it, which is not exactly the, um, the cuisine, but, uh, um, but a lot of uh, stories and, um, how do I say, traditions that are, that are very interesting. Like these Jews were Jewish, 100%, but they did a number of other really weird things. Um, and they, they had their own customs and habits that are completely different from that of the Jews of other places. Um, like there are marriage traditions and holiday traditions um, that uh, I uh, find very fascinating. And some of them pertain to food, some of them don't strictly pertain to food. Um, but for example, on, on I don't know, on, at, at the end of Passover, you would uh, bring your um, spouse a, a bunch of salad and flowers. So I was like, what, why would they bring a bunch of salad? Like you, you would literally go with a bowl of um, lettuce to your spouse. And I remember my grandfather did it. At the end of Passover, he would come to my grandmother with flowers and a bunch of salad. So um, just just some really weird customs and some of them have to do with food. Or for example, if you're, if you're going to get married, um, the, the week before the marriage, they used to make a stew with the heart of a cow. Because that symbolized the way the cow, the heart, was going from this from the guy that was getting married to the uh, to the bride. So I don't know a lot of weird, interesting customs, and the, the, you know the geek in me is digs um, recording all of this stuff. And what is the origin of bringing the salad? Do you know? Uh, yeah. that, that was a, that was a marriage. It used to be before Passover was the time you asked for a woman. You asked a woman to marry uh, to get married. And uh, the, the custom would be to bring some some food to the family, so some people would bring a salad. And for some reason, still, even though people are married, at the end of Passover, you present the the salad. If you could be eating anything at all anywhere in the world right now, what would you want to have? What would I want to have? I would want to be with my mom, like everybody does, I guess, because mom's food is the best food. Um, and what would I like to eat in particular? Um, my mother makes just so many yummy things. Um, probably my mother's lasagna. At the cost of sounding like a cliche Italian person, I'm just going to say lasagna and I'm going to own it. Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Benedetta Jasmine Guetta. Visit her food blog, labna.it, to get a copy of her book, Cooking a la Judea. Connect with her on Instagram at Labna, and if you're in Los Angeles, have lunch at Cafe Lovi. And be sure to visit thepassionistasproject.com to sign up for our mailing list, find all the ways you can follow us on social media, and join our worldwide sisterhood of women working together to level the playing field for us all. We'll be back next week with another passionista who is defining success on her own terms and breaking down the barriers for herself and women everywhere. Until then, stay well and stay passionate.